Hey everybody, uh, good morning. Welcome to Palm Peeps. Uh, this morning we have sort of a special weird episode for you. We have been always doing sort of planned episodes and we kind of thought about this idea of talking about an ICU shift in real time. And last night, both Christina and I were on overnight in the ICU. And so we thought it would be kind of cool just to talk about our nights and some things we uh, saw and some things that we did. Christina, hope you're doing okay this morning. Burp, yes. Doing okay in... I think it's rare that both of us kind of work the same nights together, but excited to kind of go over our experiences and probably um, hopefully get some teaching points out today. Yeah. And then hopefully go have breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right. Well, this is very off the cuff, so we hope you guys enjoy. Uh, Just for the sake of HIPAA, you know, we're not going to mention which ICUs we were working in, and this may not have been actually the night before tonight, just to protect the identity of our patients. We may change a few details. Christina, you want to start? You want to tell me about a case that you had and some stuff that you saw? Yeah, sure. So I am going to start with a middle-aged woman with hemoglobin SC disease, who was um, initially admitted for pain crisis or vasoclusive crisis and admitted for IV pain management fluids and consideration of a simple transfusion. You know, her baseline hemoglobin was about, uh, is usually around 6.5, but she had a hemoglobin of six on admission. So she came in and was started and was doing okay for the first 48 hours. But then on day early morning of day three of her admission, she actually developed hypoxemia requiring hyponasal cannula, altered mental status, and then subsequently required mechanical intubation and vasopressor support. And I may ask you for just um, kind of thinking about things right now. I know that the differential is broad, but what are some things you're thinking of right now for her? Yeah, totally. Off the cup on my uh, 8.50 a.m. post-call brain. <laughs> Certainly, you know, acute chest syndrome comes to mind with these sickle cell patients. And I always used to, you know, hem and haw a little bit about like the simple transfusion versus exchange. The whole idea is sort of you're drowning out this hemoglobin S fraction percentage. And, uh, you know, I think if it's they're only um, only mildly elevated or they're not that sick, just a simple work and sometimes exchange helps you drown out a little bit more of that. But I think, you know, Acute chest syndrome would be high up on there. Certainly infection, you know, an ARDS can happen. Same thing with sickle cell with uh, any other patient. Uh, and then sort of progressive respiratory failure things, things like pulmonary embolism, common things being common, we should always sort of consider. I don't know if the patient's on anticoagulation with sickle, maybe they would have higher risk for that. There could be bleeding. So probably keep my differential broad for now as I investigated. But with these sicklers, I imagine they get treated very um, aggressively upfront for their, their sickle crisis as well well, given that can certainly contribute or worsen anything with hypoxemia. You're exactly right, Perth. And I think definitely those those broad differentials that you mentioned, you know, right, was this, is this just a community acquired pneumonia and a vaso-occlusive crisis coming in? So, but a chest, C, a chest x-ray on admission show no evidence of infiltrates, but a, a CT when the patient decompensated, you know, was now showing ground glass opacities, alveolar consolidation. So, you know, a new respiratory requirement with a new infiltrate and in someone with sickle cell disease and vasoclusive crisis, acute chest is going to be be up there for sure. And as, exactly as you said, I think the mainstay of therapy is going to be exchange transfusion. So usually requiring a phoresis catheter where you're going to remove the blood um, kind of totally and then put in new donor blood to get that hemoglobin fraction down, as you said. You know, PE definitely um, can be up there, as you mentioned. And then I think things can... And, 
one of your favorites, you know, I know in sickle cell disease, you can get pulmonary hypertension. So some of that can be exacerbated um, with, with any kind of compromise as well. But I wanted to spend um, some moments talking through with you and then just talking about fat embolism syndrome in hemoglobinopathies. So I don't, I, for, I mean, I feel like probably fat embolism syndrome is going to be one, one of those things where we see more on the board than we actually see in real life. Um, not sure. Have you actually um, seen or treated anyone with fat embolism syndrome? No, I haven't. I mean, I've had somebody with a fat embolism before in sort of that classic, like long bone fracture type thing, but not sort of the sickle cell and certainly hurt, you know, uh, prepared for it on boards, but also always want to be ready for these crazy, you know, rare things that come into ICU. Yeah. Tell me more about it. Yeah. So, you know, fat embolism syndrome is um, super rare, um, but exact. Um, I, I kind of like to think of it as three big buckets or etiologies that can cause it. So I think a classic board question and one that you mentioned is going to be an orthopedic trauma. So um, specifically long bone fractures or and or pelvic fractures. So, you know, a STEM question may be, you know, a patient in a motor vehicle accident, you know, is coming in with a right femur fracture and pelvic fracture. And then, you know, day three of admission has respiratory compromise, neurological symptoms, and a petechial rash. I think the petechial rash is not always seen, but is kind of um, common for fat embolism syndrome. Because you can imagine respiratory distress and neurological symptoms can be from a lot of other etiologies. So orthopedic trauma um, is a first bucket. You know, non-orthopedic trauma, so specifically burns or any other injury to adipose tissues. And then the third bucket I like to think of is like non-trauma related. So two things in this category um, could be pancreatitis. And um, in our case, you know, a hemoglobinopathy. And the underlying mechanism behind that is really bone marrow necrosis. Hmm. So I think, you know, a good type, what exactly are the, the manifestations and why does fat embolism cause them? So it's really the kind of the release of the the fat globules um, into the systemic circulation. A triad, as I mentioned, being respiratory failure, which is the most common uh, manifestation seen, neurological involvement, which is the second most common manifestation, and then the petechial rash that I mentioned. I know I, I've read some resources that may include thrombocytopenia, the, the three kind of um, triad that I mentioned are, the, are what you're going to commonly see. Huh. Um, Damn fat globules! They're the I know, <laughs> <laughs> right? The, the those those fat fat globules uh, for <laughs> sure. Um, but really, right? So then it's like fats released into the venous circulation and then the pulmonary circulation. But so that you know, thinking about that, that can explain to me, you know, getting into the pulmonary capillaries and causing you know the respiratory manifestations. But like, how exactly do neurological changes in the rash occur? And I'm not sure. Do you have any? Do you remember any anything with that for for thoughts on that? No, I don't. Don't off the top of my head. I mean, I think that the um, I can imagine neurologic one. I always worry about sort of paradoxical embolism if you have anything like that. So uh, certainly, uh, unrecognized PFOs or ASDs are really common in the population. So I definitely worry about that. Uh, but you know, I don't remember off the top of my head the thing for petechiae, or if you don't have that, if there are other reasons why you get altered mental status. Yeah. So um, nothing can pass by you, Ferb. You're exactly right. I mean, I think the most common reason for um, neurological um, manifestations is if someone had uh, 
patent firm in El Valley, which, um, as you said, is common. So about common in about 25% of the population are one in four people. Um, so the fat can pass through the PFO, um, go into the arterial circulation, and then end up in the brain. Um, and then the petechial rash, I, I had to look this one up as well. There's a few theories, but the like microemboli that are still able to to get through into the arterial circulation that end up um, causing the rash. I was a little bit rusty on that on that last component, so I did yeah. have to look that up. But I think I think good to know. Um, a, and then late night PubMed. There's nothing better. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and then another PubMed, um, which I was I mean I couldn't remember this off the top of my head, but there's a couple of scoring systems that are used, and some of them, you know. The major criteria, kind of the three, the triad that we mentioned, some other lab work, um, which I think is pretty nonspecific, but, you know, anemia, thrombocytopenia, elevated ESR can be seen. And then one source mentioned like fat macroglobulinemia, which I'm not, like, how do you even measure that? Um, but <laughs> but that, that's another minor criteria, depending on some of the scoring systems that you use. But I think, for, as you can imagine, you know, you and I haven't necessarily clinically seen this. It's um, more of a should know about it, will be tested about it. So I think, you know, you have to have a really, really high index of suspicion um, if we're thinking that this is going to happen. So a bronchoscopy with the BAL may be recommended in, in certain cases. I think specifically if someone has respiratory distress and um, the patient's already intubated. So I think as part of the workup, you're going to get a CT chest, which is going to probably show some airspace consolidations. And But a bronch and BAL can actually be done. And what you're looking for is, you know, higher percentage of macrophages, but really looking for, you can ask the pathologist to look for fat in the alveolar macrophage. Ages. And both of those findings are highly suggestive of fat um, embolism syndrome. Recommendations I know from, you know, hematology colleagues and urology colleagues that may be consulted on patients, you know, CT head probably is going to be, you know, done right away, specifically if someone is having altered mental status, but really um, the most sensitive test is going to be brain MRI. And there's like a specific kind of distribution that can be seen, more of a watershed distribution signifying cerebral fat emboli. So I think pretty interesting. Um, you know, some of this I remember, some of this, um, as you mentioned, you know, some early pub medding, which I think is great just to remind yourself and, re and review. And then I think the last thing, you know, what do we actually do for if someone has fat, uh, fat emboli yeah, um, right. syndrome? And you hear emboli, you think anticoagulation, but at the same time, it's fat. It's not a clot, right? So it doesn't seem like that would have a huge impact for you. So yeah, I'm curious. What did they do for yeah. this? Yeah, overall, supportive care. Um, and that could mean a lot of different things. But, you know, if someone is with respiratory failure, obviously do, doing lung protective ventilation because ARDS can be can manifest as well. Basis pressure support if needed. You know, you can develop multi-organ failure. So definitely watching kidney function and other labs going along with that. You know, in the orthopedic literature, there's some things where you can, you want to stabilize the fracture as, as we kind of talked about earlier in the case. But for people with underlying hemoglobinopathies, the um, red cell um, exchange transfusion, as we talked about, is really what's going to be helpful. There's some sparse data like on corticosteroids in orthopedic um, population, and then in hemoglobinopathies, some um, plasma exchange, but that's not commonly done. So that's kind of where where I ended, um, right? So I think this was, for me, you know, a good review of something that it's a rare condition, high index of suspicion to have, but, you know, 
specifically in someone with an underlying hemoglobinopathy, you know, you want to keep that um, at the forefront. And I, you know, I'm sure Rocky Nayak, who we've had on our show before, um, and is probably so excited that we're even bringing this up right now. So hopefully, hope uh, we're reaching out to some of the heme dream teams, as she would say. Yeah, absolutely. For our exchange transfusion, for sure. And just to be clear on it, sounds like you don't anticoagulate these people, right? Because it's like just a fat embolism. It's not, nothing's going to break up from that. Yeah, exactly. You're exactly right. For Yeah, cool. Yeah. I mean, it, that's so interesting. I, this, I'm having like a, a, a fatty week, both in personal <laughs> and professional. Because I also, I just recently had a case of a patient who came in and his CT was really impressive, but he wasn't, didn't look that sick. And, and he had a, you know, fat, uh, Houndsfield unit density within his lung, uh, consistent with potentially lipoid pneumonia, which like you said, also a bronch for that can also show these macrophages with these big vacuoles in it. And so um, can be a similar findings, slightly different that they'll see on histology. Uh, and it turned out that this, this guy had was using a lot of mineral oil um, for constipation. So he's like the at risk, like classic patient you hear about who accidentally is aspirating mineral oil. So that was uh, a good, this is a good theme with my, my running <laughs> it's a it's a good good thing for the holiday season (laughs) well i had a case last night that like our was it seemed to be like straight out of our podcast you know it's um the case i've sort of seen before but we've also kind of discussed before a similar one so i kind of just tell you in broad strokes this patient was transferred from another hospital she has a a past medical history of some autoimmune disease on rituximab uh it was actually like a, a a myelitis um that she'd been on and probably last dose maybe six to eight months ago uh she had recently traveled she had recently had covid like about a month ago but then came in went to the hospital initially maybe for dka she had a, a diabetes oh uh, do you hear Esme running around and meowing in the background? That's my cat. <laughs> morning. She's a morning person. So. <laughs> she, she wants to join. <laughs> she wants to join. So this patient, you know, initially seemingly for DKA, but that got better and she's still altered and then had progressive hypoxemic respiratory failure. CAT scan showed lots of ground glass opacities, sort of like crazy paving pattern, you know, uh, uh, distinguished areas of septal thickening with ground glass opacities scattered throughout the lungs, some areas of consolidation started on very broad spectrum antibiotics and antifungals and transferred over uh, to us. And so sort of was looking at the patient, looking through everything. The infectious stuff didn't totally fit. She had already had like a bronchoscopy um, and nothing was really growing. There was like a slightly positive galactomannan, you know, thought about certainly just ARDS or fluid, but she didn't seem that fluid overloaded overall. Um, And so DAH sort of popped into the, you know, top of my head. She didn't have a lot of hematosis, but it certainly looked like it could be, and she had this anemia. Um, So I ended up bronching her again overnight. I'm curious, you know, like how often, I feel like that was an interesting decision. She's already been bronched. And so, you know, she intubated, so it's a low risk. So I don't always repeat the bronchoscopy, but, you know, curious how often you end up repeating it yourself if things are just like not getting better. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, as you said, you know, definitely looking at the uh, vet requirements and, you know, oxygenation parameters, but um, I've had a low threshold, you know, to, to rebronchus if I think that there's an etiology that perhaps I missed, you know, on the first time, you know, or, or didn't send for a specific test or someone's intubated for a specific reason, but they can have a subsequent insult or hit. So maybe she didn't have evidence of DAH initially, but then developed that. So I agree, Farf, I, I would have a low threshold to repeat the bronchus you did. 
All right, totally. Well, I feel validated. So, <laughs> bronchitis patient, you know, a lot of mucus, a lot of um, old blood, and pulled out a bunch of like plugs and clots. And maybe we could post a couple of these pictures mm-hmm. I have. And then ended up doing the cereal lavage that sort of we've talked about in prior episodes. And it at least grossly looked like the progressively bloodying uh, sample. So, you know, concerning to me for a DHA picture. She was also, as she mentioned, in acute oligaric renal failure. And, you know, she was a sick lady. Obviously, we see this a lot in the ICU. Uh, could this just be ATN or um, septic ATN, pre-renal initially, and then uh, having an injury afterwards or some other medication-induced effect? Sure. But it raised the specter of like a pulmonary uh, renal syndrome for me. So waiting on some of the, the results, I didn't pull the trigger on, you know, giving her steroids or doing like empiric for DAH, we should mention we've talked about DAH. DAH can be primary due to capillaritis and inflammation in the lungs, uh, which you're seeing with your serial lavages is this irritation of the capillaries that continue to rupture and more blood cells will extravasate. Uh, or it can be secondary just to infection. Now, she's not on any anticoagulation, wasn't some renal failure, so maybe some bleeding risk there. It can also be secondary due to medication side effects, toxidromes, cocaine use, things like that can also lead to this. So I was glad I did the bronch, feel like I have a good diagnosis of truly DH. And then in my uh, practice of this, I'm sort of waiting, you know, maybe if she's very sick, me or has like very high suspicion, uh, or I could get a renal biopsy right away, maybe I'll pull the trigger right away. But I like to wait 12, 24 hours, see if the cultures grow anything, see if there's anything that causes me secondary, and then maybe start in pericommunosuppression. So I'll be kind of curious uh, uh, what comes out of it. I don't know, have you gone to steroids right away if you get DH, or do you usually do a little bit of workup before you pull the trigger? Yeah, I think, um, as you said, I think that the clinical context is is going to be important, right? Someone who may be on 100% FiO2, high PEEP, and, um, you know, is not doing well, I may be, um, I may go ahead and do the bronch, and um, if I'm concerned or seems consistent with DAH, I may go ahead and start steroids then. If I have 12 to 24 hours, to, you know, to wait, um, I do like to, to rule out, you know, a potential invasive fungal um, infection before starting high-dose steroids as well for yeah, totally. Yeah. And the, the only other interesting, so I'll, I'll, I'll be curious, uh, hopefully I'll round back and give an update on what this patient ends up having for this. You know, certainly we were treating with broad spectrum antibiotics in the meantime, um, and sent off a slew of other workup, including serologic workup. And we've had a case of anti-GBM. Uh, so I sent that antibody to see if that was it, as well as ANCAs and sort of the more common causes of this. Somewhat interesting procedural thing with her where I, you know, I do a lot of lines in as you work in the cath lab and stuff. So I feel comfortable with them, but it's always good to sort of talk about procedures that failed or things that happen. So we were doing dialysis catheter in her, good access, easy to the vein, confirmed on ultrasound, also confirmed on qualitative manometry, which I do for all my lines now, but, you know, I put a little catheter over the wire. I hook up a, a saline filled tubing. I hold it up, see, make sure that the, it's not pulsatile, that it's dark blood, that it's draining passively back into the vein. So all that looked nice and venous, wire rethreaded, still in the uh, vein on ultrasound. Did serial dilation? No problem. Dilators went very easily, nothing out of the order, ordinary. And then went to thread the catheter, met sort of resistance after like 10 or 11 centimeters of going in the catheter. So sort of far in. So it was a weird, that was a little bit weird. I, um, 
I'm curious if you had situations like this. I've certainly had kinked wires where you can't mm -hmm. dilate uh, or and then you can't dilate the put the catheter through. Uh, but this sort of didn't feel like that. So I don't know if you had line issues like that before, Monty, and or, or any strategies for what to do with those. Yeah, I mean, I think that the kinked wire is going to be is kind of the most common one that that I've come across. But I, I don't know. I feel like I have a, I have a low threshold to abort, and um, you know, also get another set of eyes or hands in with me, um, just to kind of tr troubleshoot things. But interested to see what what you ended up doing. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, you know, I think aborting, we talked about this a lot. And certainly if anything is atypical, you don't want to force anything, right? So you got to yeah. be aborting. At the same time, there's some troubleshooting techniques. Some. So because I, I didn't think there was a king wire, I wanted to see if there was. And I, uh, the dilator had gone easily. So I put the dilator back over one of the dialysis catheter dilators and the wire was still moving very uh, so it kind of acts as a sheath and the dilator was moving totally seamlessly in and out of the dilator. So it seems like there's not a kink there. It doesn't seem like there's a turn that's going. It dilated a little further than I had before. Same thing, catheter on and it sort of met resistance and coil. So at this point, just as you said, I wasn't sure what was going on. I think it's something anatomic. So I, I aborted that, that line and, you know, pulled the line. The wire came out, the wire was pristine, no kinking whatsoever. Uh, didn't have any sort of curving or, uh, or coiling. So I'm not totally sure. I wonder if there's an anatomic uh, uh, malformation. The other thing is she had a line on the other side, thought maybe it was making a turn sort of going upwards and it was just meeting resistance in that place. But I think the lesson is like troubleshoot, troubleshoot safely, you know, once you have uh, feel comfortable, but obviously always, you know, recite your line if you're having an issue. So just went um, femoral for her line, no issues, dialysis catheter in with no problem. And, you know, post procedure x-ray and ultrasound uh, had no complications from our failed attempt. Uh, but, you know, it, when you're doing lines and doing a lot of them, you're going to have some interesting things that you run into. You're going to fail some of them and abort some, hopefully a small percentage, but it's good to be able to have sort of a toolkit. So I guess mine is just uh, one qualitative manometry. So, you know, you're in the vein using a little sheath and then measuring the pressure. And then two, if everything's going well and you feel really confident that you haven't, you're not in the wrong place uh, or causing any damage, you know, can you use your dilator, exchange a wire or make sure your wire is at least moving freely and doesn't have evidence of a kink for that. So um, oh, always fun to do a little procedure troubleshooting at three or 30 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And I'm really interested to kind of see what what's going to happen and, and kind of a follow up for the for the case. When you were initially, um, you know, talking about and presenting it, I'm like, oh, mucor, like I was like, she can have mucor, yeah, she can have aspergillus. Then you said crazy pavement. I was like, oh, is it going to be, you know, going back to like our PAP um, um, episode that we did? Um, but, and then I was like, yeah, then of course the, the episode we did with Tess where we talked about pulmonary renal syndromes, um, I think was was definitely interesting and, and commonly see. So um, hopefully excited to get some follow-up on that first. Yeah, yeah, it was a fun diagnostic case. We'll definitely round back for all our listeners. Um, I guess the last thing I had last night is, and this is not uncommon, unfortunately, I see it was a patient who family ended up going comfort measures and passed away comfortably uh, with good pain and anxiolytic control and, and loved ones at the bedside. And, you know, I think we have done a lot of talking about clinical medicine. We've had some patients on the podcast, but obviously this is a huge part of all medicine. A huge part of ICU care is sort of just our, our close family kind of conversations and being there for 
loved ones and patients in these like hard time, hard and challenging times. So just recognizing that that always comes up. I thought the team I was with did a really wonderful job in supporting the family through a, a, you know, a horrible day in their life. Um, and, you know, I, I think probably we should explore this further in some other episodes. We'll talk maybe about palliative care and end of life care and, and family communication. I hope. Such a true point, Barb. And, you know, I um, I feel like there's been a lot of um, shows either like in the movie theater, like um, I know, spoiler alert. And then there's that show on Netflix too, um, From Scratch, which kind of talk about um, oncologic issues and end of life care. And, you know, someone was mentioning, they're like, oh, like this is based on a true story. And I'm like, yeah, like, you know, we, we see that as providers, we see that every day. So it's, it's just really insightful to see. And I'm glad like those cases are being exposed to, you know, the general audience and general public. And I think as a community, as you said, kind of working together and, and kind of thinking through how we can approach some of these um, end of life decisions and, and provide, you know, optimal care in that in those settings. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a skill like anything else, right. Is being knowing what to do, what you can offer and, and how to do it. So it's great. Right. All sure, right. For sure. Breakfast time. I think breakfast sandwich for me from morning. Do you have a post-call meal, Monty? Anything that you go for every time? <laughs> I'm, I'm really um, into lavender oat milk lattes right now. So oh I, think I'm gonna, I think I'm going to try to go grab one of those. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. I love that. All right. Very cool. Much better than what my old residency post-call meal used to be, which is like a whomping Chipotle burrito. But I've moved away from those days, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sounds good for for I'm glad um I'm glad that we got to share um some things that we learned and you know I think next time both of us end up working the same night together I'd uh, love to do this again yeah I love it all right uh just so everybody knows uh we're gonna take a break for one week over the holidays over that uh week between Christmas and New Year's we'll post some radiology round stuff uh, leading up to them but otherwise we will see you back with Palm Peeps in January Happy holidays to everybody and uh, you know, stay out there taking good care of patients. All right. Have a good one.